right, good, good, good. Well, we're going to continue this morning and uh, with the study of the scripture. So if you have your Bible, take it out, turn it on, find uh, Ephesians chapter 5 in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then begins a series of letters to churches, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and then some smaller letters. You can remember the order of those smaller ones with General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's how I learned them. All right, so find Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going. Okay, um, so uh, this coming weekend, um, I, along with my family, will be enjoying the celebration of a wedding. Yeah, and a wedding is always a joy for lots and lots of reasons, and this wedding is all of that, plus one additional detail, uh, and that is that this wedding, in this wedding, I am the father of the bride, the first of my children to marry, and so this wedding celebration is all the wonderful, joyous aspects of every wedding celebration, but it's touched just by that one additional detail uh, that my little girl is getting married, and that is just bizarre to say, right? Uh, also, I'm honored that uh, the bride and groom have asked me to officiate their wedding. Um, so, you know, if I haven't said this already, y'all pray for me, all right? Uh, over the last several weeks, my dad... <laughs> My dad just keeps asking me every time we talk about it. My dad's 82. How in the world are you going to get through that, son? Have you thought about taking a nerve pill? <laughs> and the first time he said it, my answer was an emphatic no. But now that he's mentioned it a few times, I'm thinking, oh, maybe, I don't know. We'll see. Not, maybe not a bad idea. No, actually, I'm quite looking forward to it. Um, we're very proud of both of them. They're both great people. Uh, life is a gift, marriage is a gift, and we plan to celebrate them like crazy. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that's, that's the plan. So with all that on my mind, um, I wanted to talk a little bit this morning about marriage. And also I have a little bit of a stealth agenda, uh, and that is that if I fumble the ball completely at the wedding ceremony, I can point back to this sermon and say that's mostly what I meant to say, right? Um, so... No, I don't know. Just, just thinking about, you know, marriage and all that. And so just thought that it'd be good for us this morning to share a little bit. So um, Ephesians 5, all right, let's read this and kind of see what, you know, what to make of it. Here we go. Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Skipping down to verse 25 now. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, let me just begin um, with, I don't know, let me just begin with the dark side. Um, I think it's safe to say, just to flat out say it, that there is perhaps no other single passage in the Bible that has been more misunderstood and more misappropriated than this one right here, and to tragic effect, in fact. And by that, I mean that it would be a tragedy 
uh, for someone to encounter this beautiful passage of scripture and zero in on the one phrase that simply says wives submit to your husbands and then for us to walk away assuming that we had discovered that it is God's command that wives should function like some sort of unilateral underclass in their marriages. This would be not only a misunderstanding of the heart of God, what the Apostle Paul is saying, this would be a tragedy, and I would say, if I could say it just a bit stronger, it would be a sacrilege against God. Listen, uh, the one true God is a liberator of people, uh, not a subjector uh, of people. He seeks the absolute flourishing of every single human being. I want to be as clear and emphatic about that as I possibly can. And I know I'm in the right church this morning. You're thinking, well, yeah, but I'm just saying these ideas are out there. So, this passage suggests nothing of the sort, quite the opposite, actually. And so what I want to do this morning is just unpack this, pack, this passage um, in a more or less close to the contour way, uh, and then step back and kind of give a real life, maybe, application of how this might work out. So, so first of all, I want us to start at the beginning and notice the flow of thought in its entirety in this beautiful passage of Scripture. But here, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is speaking to the church the community of the Spirit, about what it looks like for the community of the Spirit to actually function and flow as a community of the Spirit. In other words, you're not just, you're not just a community of the Spirit by language. You really are a community of people animated by the Holy Spirit. And so then Paul moves into this section about what it would look like, feel like, what it would flow like for a community of people to actually function and flow in a spirit-soaked kind of way. And he gives these four ongoing hallmarks uh, for what it is, what it, how it flows, how it functions to be a spirit-soaked community. And they're in these ING words, speaking, singing, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. That is, he's speaking to the entire church, and he's saying, here's what it's like to be a spirit-saturated, spirit-animated community. And he brings out these four functions uh, speaking psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, uh, giving thanks to God, and submitting to one another. That is, all of us submitting to all of us. That is one of the hallmarks, the Apostle Paul says, of the community of the Spirit flowing and functioning as a community in the Spirit. So in a phrase, we could say that what Paul has established here initially in this uh, first kind of headline is... Uh, a condition of universal submission, everybody submitting to everybody. And you say, well, how does that actually work? If everybody's going to submit to everybody, then who? well, it just, it just is. That's, that's just what he's saying, right? Okay. And then, and only then, after establishing this atmosphere of universal submission, only then does the Apostle Paul move into the specific context of marriage as an example of how this ethic of spirit-soaked universal submission would play out in the context of marriage. And that's when he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. So in a word, what could we say in, uh, in marriage and how this, how this plays out specifically in marriage? Well, we could say that the spirit-soaked ethic of universal submission uh, becomes, in the context of marriage, it becomes... Well, mutual submission in marriage. It's, it's, it really is two people arriving at a single uh, doorway and, 
and the one person going, you first. And the other person saying, oh, no, you first. And the other person going, no, no, I insist, I insist, you first. No, no, I insist, you first. I mean, that's literally the image. As impossible as that may sound, that's what we're given. This ethic of mutual submission, that is the idea. Is everybody tracking? All right? So, now, I want to say, um, and I'm hoping I'm going to make the case for this, that when it's all said and done, and man, you know, I've been in this thing for a long time. I've done marriage seminars, read marriage books, done marriage small groups, done, you know, whatever. When it's all said and done, this is the only way that it works. This is the only, when, when all the books run out of answers, when all the marriage counselors run out of answers, and I don't mean to oversimplify, please don't take, I don't mean that, but, but this is the only way that it works. This mutual commitment to mutual submission, the one preferring the other and the other preferring the one in a covenant, sold out, all in kind of way. That's the only way that it works. So let me take another run at this and back up. And I love this, um, this well, this is really a way of unpacking um, maybe, well, not the application, but maybe this is a way to apply um, what we've uncovered here. Okay. I don't care who you are, if you're married, um, when you got married, uh, or if you're not married, when you get married, um, you'll have a box full of desires, hopes, and dreams for your future. I mean, there'll be the wedding, there'll be the flower girls, there'll be the rings, there'll be all those things that are visible and seen and celebrated, but then there'll be this other additional invisible thing, and it'll be this box full of your hopes and dreams and desires for your future life, right? Like your desire for a certain car or house or grandfather clock or a desire to have no holy socks in your, you know, wardrobe or no ugly nightgowns or what, I mean, it'll just be some, you know, some collection. You'll have a, a, a dream, a wish, a hope, a desire um, to never do any housework or never do any yard work or maybe have a dream for, for children or a certain a certain dream or hope or wish about um, about money, some kind of money kind of desire. Uh, maybe you have a desire for one of those one of those pretty posed family portraits over the fireplace, you know, whatever. I mean, all those you'll have all these desires, hopes, and dreams for your future. And let me just kind of say, this is not to not to be pokey, but what all of those desires have in common is I. I hope for X. I dream of X. I desire X in the future. Um, and that's not to, that's not to poke at anything. It's, it, it, you don't, we don't have any choice, right? Like, I, it's not possible for me to have zero hopes and dreams. I have, to, I have to come to the proposition with some kind of hopes and dreams, some sort of imagination for the future, and that imagination can only be mine. So it, it I mean, I can't come with some, so it, it, it's, it's necessary, but just to point it out that what all of those desires, hopes, and dreams have in common is I. Now, here's what happens over time uh, that becomes um, part of the struggle. There is a subtle shift that happens over time where these desires, hopes, dreams, become expectations. 
That is to say, at some point, somewhere along the way, sometime after the wedding, maybe five minutes, maybe five years, maybe longer, but at some point, those desires, hopes, and dreams subtly, um, sometimes without even noticing or recognizing when or how or where the transition occurs, they morph into something else, something other than desires, wishes, hopes, dreams. They become expectations. Hopes, dreams, wishes, even you could say my imagination for the future. It shifts and becomes my expectation. And when that happens, stop Siri, this is not your time. And when that shift happens, the dynamic is changed deeply, emphatically. It's no longer a dream or a wish or a hope now. It's an expectation that I have of my spouse. Does everybody feel the difference between those two? In, in, in one sense, it sounds like, well, it's just a different word. You can substitute the word for hope. Uh, you could substitute for hope the word expectation. It's just a word. No, it's everything. The difference is profound. This little shift actually changes everything. Just to say it another way, um, it's a whole lot more fun for my spouse to be a dream fulfiller than to be an expectation meter, right? I can say from my standpoint, it's a whole lot more fun for me to be a dream fulfiller for my spouse than to be an expectation meter, right? Does everybody see the difference? The moment that is that my desires, hopes, and dreams make this subtle shift into the realm of expectation at that moment, then, my spouse is no longer a dream fulfiller. My spouse is now an expectation meter. The very best she can do is uh, shoot par. Well, congratulations. You met expectations. You're now up to zero. You know what I mean? I mean, it just, it just changes everything. It's, it's subtle, but it is significant. And listen, this is happening, again, not in your case, but in those other marriages. This is happening times two. Both, both members, right, both participants in the marriage are at, at probably at different paces, but making that shift from hopes, dreams, wishes, imagination to expectations. And so it's happening times two. You don't know the day it happened. You don't know. It wasn't even intentional. It just happens. And in that moment, look how far we've come now from where we started uh, from this beautiful image given to us by the apostle as impractical as it sounds this spirit-soaked mutual submission now once hopes and dreams and desires have shifted into expectations now it's a competition for who's going to get their expectations met who's going to get their expectations met more or who's going to get their expectations met in larger dose or closer to a hundred percent you know what i'm saying i mean it just it now we're way far away from this beautiful spirit-soaked vision of mutual submission, and now we've come, come into a competition for whose expectations are going to be fulfilled. And so we come to the point where we could say, now we're at the point, I call it a competition, maybe that's a gracious way to say it. We could also say maybe it's a battle. <laughs> it's a battle of the eyes. It's the too big I, I over here, and I over here, and I expect this, and I expect this, and it becomes this competition. And when these competition, when these um, expectations collide, there are really just, there's probably more, but I've got kind of three general uh, responses to this battle of the eyes um, uh, that are 
fairly observable. And even as I delineate these, it, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You've seen this. Uh, but, but the first response, or one, not necessarily first in order, but first for me to mention, uh, is to leave. Um, well, you're not meeting my expectations. You're not fulfilling my desires. And so I'm going to take my box full of expectations and I'm going to go dump them on somebody else. <laughs> right? Um, uh, and that's why in many instances, the second marriage is just like the first marriage because wherever you go, there you are, you know. Um, or I guess on the flip side of that, someone, someone may say, hey, no matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, I just can't measure up. I just can't seem to meet your expectations. And so I can't take this anymore. So tragedy strikes and someone leaves. Um, the second potential response to this battle is what we might call the conquer surrender syndrome. And this is where one partner just conquers the other partner until the, until the one just decides to surrender. Whomever is the dominant partner just, I'm going to explain it, and then I'm going to explain it again, and I'm going to explain it again, and I'm going to explain it again, how it's supposed to go into marriage until finally the more dominant partner prevails over the other. This is just how a good marriage is supposed to function. This is just what a good wife is. This is just what good wives do. This is just how it's supposed to go until finally the other says, okay, if that's what it takes to make you happy, if that's what it takes to keep the peace, then fine, I'll just do it your way, right? So one has conquered the other. And of course, you can see the tragedy in that scenario, but I just want to say maybe in a way a less common way to view this scenario is one thing that's happening here is that with this paradigm, um, one person is being some something or someone that they're not, right? Being required to be someone who they are not. And that, that might work for a while, but in reality, that just initiates uh, a, well, maybe this is probably not too dramatic, a ticking time bomb until eventually days going to go by, months are going to go by, years are going to go by, and then somewhere, some point, somebody, somewhere down the road, somebody is going to erupt, and everybody's going to go, what happened? What in the world? And they're going to, nothing happened. It was just that time bomb ticked and ticked and ticked and ticked until somebody just went, pow, you know what I'm saying? Because you can't be someone you're not. So then here's the third um, response, and this I, I think is um, by far the most common, uh, and that is to compromise. When we reach that point where it's the battle of the eyes, the competition for whose uh, expectations are going to be met, um, the most common um, response, or I'll say attempt at resolution to this conflict, is compromise, which is basically I will if you will. Um, it's very common, um, just kind of meet in the middle. We split everything, you know, right down the, right down the center. Um, I will, if you will, since you did, now I get to. Um, uh, I, uh, I only did that because you did, or I won't because you didn't, right? You know what I mean? So it's, everything, is, everything is a compromise. It's a negotiated settlement, a negotiated um, contract. And here's the thing I want you to notice, even in this very common attempt at resolution, notice the thing that's still at the core of this paradigm for seeking a, a resolution uh, and I just want to suggest what's at the core still is I, right? It's, it's, it's I need to get my expectations met. And I can see here that, that you got one of your expectations met, or at least partially so. And so now I get to get a, 
part of my expectation. So, so what's still at the core is a commitment to I. It's about negotiating my way around so that I get as close to the fulfillment of my expectations as is possible. Uh, and so this is a very common attempt uh, to, to settle this issue. It's kind of the compromise um, syndrome. And I just want to say, just trying to s- just compress this as much as possible. Uh, another way to look at this is the compromise syndrome. You can tell when it's happening, um, if you can't tell otherwise. But you can tell when it's happening even sometimes by your language. When, when, when your language becomes, um, when you begin to speak about the marriage or our marriage or we need to work on the marriage or we need to talk about our marriage, m- not always, but, but more often than not, when that language is, is when that's the way you begin to speak um, about your relationship, um, what's going on there is you're thinking of it as a negotiated settlement, as a contract. Right? So we need to talk about the marriage because the contract, the negotiations aren't quite, I'm not quite satisfied with the way the negotiations are, are settling out, right? So sometimes that language can be a cue um, for what's going on underneath. And I just want to say this, and I, I've, I've said this before, um, uh, but sometimes in the whole kind of modern evangelical conversation, there can be so much talk about marriage. Like, we need to be committed to marriage. We need to be committed. We need to figure out marriage and all that stuff. And I just want to say, and this is just kind of my attempt to cut through all that, well, bull. Um, I'm not called to be committed to marriage. I'm called to be committed to Georgia, right? And there's a difference. You know what I'm saying? Um, like, well, there can be well-meaning people who can write books and do seminars and do all that stuff, but they're not married to Georgia. I am. And I'm committed to her. That's, that's my calling. And there's a real difference, you know what I mean? Um, and so sometimes just the whole syndrome of talking about the marriage and all that, it can just be a, a grand evangelical smokescreen for ultimately being committed to I, Right? It's like, I'm going to figure out how to get maximum satisfaction of my expectation, and we're going to go to seminars until we find the right one that gets my expectations met. You know what I'm saying? Like, that can be a real game that we're playing with ourselves when all along what's going on is uh, we're just waiting on the spirit-soaked vision of the Apostle Paul to land in our heart of hearts and say, you know what? We're called to lay down self for the sake of one another. In the end, that's what it's all about so this compromise thing this meet in the middle response um uh, it's a that's a contract while in reality marriage is a covenant and it's a completely different universe there's a completely different universe between a contract and a covenant a contract is a relationship based on negotiated terms and a covenant there's that word is an unconditional commitment a contractual relationship practically speaking let's say let's get practical here um, the very first thing to go is intimacy when it's when it's a contract the very first thing to go is is intimacy and you can see it clearly when you think about just the word that i just used um, a covenant is is well I want to say, fueled by unconditional love. And in a contract, there's no such thing as anything that's unconditional. 
in a contract, the, it, the very, their very definition of a contract is, is conditional. It's I will if you will. See? And so what goes out the window, because it's, um, it's impossible in the context of a negotiated contract, it's impossible for unconditional love to have its way, to have its work in, that con in the context of a negotiated contract. And so with that disappearance, so goes intimacy. Another way to say it is that this expectation-driven marriage, ultimately it creates a debt-debtor relationship dynamic. Um, when you move your desires into the expectation category, you move from covenant, unconditional commitment to a debt-debtor relationship. Because another way of expressing this is by uh, expressing expectations is, is with an unspoken you owe me, right? Um, you you were able you 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 were able to get that particular expectation fulfilled, and so now you owe me. See what I mean? We're firmly in the territory of a debt debtor relationship, and so with that, out goes the potential for this unconditional nature of love to have its way in the relationship. And there's all kinds of pushback against this. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I understand. I mean, I, I, I live it, right? There's all kinds of um, pushback to this, right? And it's like, well, you stood at the altar, and you said this and this, and you made this promise, and you made, made this promise. I mean, isn't it right for me to expect my spouse to fulfill this promise? And I want to say to that, yes, it is right. But it doesn't change the fact that if, if it comes out in a you owe me capacity, it's not going to be the nature of what a covenant is. But isn't it right? I have certain desires and expectations. I'm not being selfish. I mean, I just want to be, I want to be cherished. I want to be appreciated. I want to be respected. Is it wrong for me? No, it's not. It's not wrong. Many of those desires are perfectly legitimate and held by your heavenly father equally with you. It's right. And yet it's still true when it, when that very legitimate desire manifests itself as an expectation. Now you're just steps away from you owe me, you're in my debt. And once that dynamic takes hold, takes root in the relationship, then the very idea of covenant becomes out of reach. See what I'm saying? I, I Man, I remember years ago, my sister, uh, one of my sisters, Kelly, she's 18 months older than me, um, but she got married later in life. I think she was 40 when she got married. And I remember when Georgia and I sat with she and her fiance, and um, they just wanted to talk with us. This was only a short time before the wedding, and they just wanted to talk with us um, just about marriage. And, um, and we started talking to them about this idea. Um, and... Uh, I don't remember what words I said, but I was trying to describe this, you know. And I remember my sister, 40 years old, I remember she kind of sat back. Maybe she even crossed her arms. <laughs> she said, that's risky. And, uh, and I said, you're right. It is. It is. To just enter in 
to this covenant relationship with no conditions except you go first. You come first. Yeah, that's risky. So I, my sister, obviously, she's bright. She comes from the same gene pool, but, boy, she's, re- you know what I mean? She got right to the core of it. Yeah, that's, that's risky. That's saying a whole lot. Um, so, uh, so there you have it. Um, what I want to, what I want to do to wrap up, um, is just give you maybe a couple of maybe simple ways to recognize Maybe, maybe take the temperature <laughs> um, on this question of where are we, for those of you who are married, um, where are we on this, on this shift, you know, from desires, hopes, and dreams? Is it possible that maybe that shift has occurred if, if you don't already know the answer um, to that? I just want to give you two little hooks recognizing whether that's happened um, and they are as simple as they sound expressions of gratitude and acts of service um, if you think about it an expression of gratitude in the context of a debt debtor relationship an expression of gratitude um, well I, I don't know I want I don't want to say it would it would wouldn't be there at all but it would be kind of odd right like in other words if like just to say like my mortgage company is never going to send me a letter that says hey we just want you to know how grateful we are that you've sent in your mortgage payment on a monthly basis for the last x number of years right that's never they're never going to say that right because all i'm doing is meeting expectations month after month after month i'm just meeting their expectation i'm fulfilling the contract that we agreed upon Right, And so even though it is costly for me to do what I'm doing on a monthly basis for the mortgage company, they're never going to thank me for it. See, And so it's kind of the same way. Once, once the debt-debtor syndrome kind of takes root and sucks the unconditional out of the atmosphere, then an expression of gratitude would be, I don't know what, foreign. It, an expression of gratitude is going to be foreign to a debt-debtor kind of relationship. And so... This works both ways. This is a way to more or less kind of diagnose the atmosphere in in your relationship currently. But also, I think the power in this is one of the ways that maybe you can breathe some of that unconditional oxygen back into the atmosphere is by expressing gratitude. Wow. Thank you for sending in that mortgage payment, Mr. Kenyon. (laughs) But no, okay, that was back to that. But, but. You know, just for, for something that, again, you know, I have to have some latitude here because it's hard to, you know, but, but for something that you might have, that might have been for you just simply the meeting of expectations, just recognize that, wait a minute, that's a moment for an expression of gratitude when if this were an unconditional atmosphere, I would be saying, wow, thank you for, and I'm hesitant to mention specific things, right? Because, like, you know what I mean? Like, that's tricky. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> no, no, that's just my sermon, not yours. <laughs> All right, so you get the idea. So expressions of gratitude it works both ways. 
um, it's a way to sort of diagnose and, ex- and assess, but it's also a way to proactively, right, get in front of that thing and say, all right, so since I'm feeling a little bit of reluctance to say thank you, for that very reason, I'm going to say thank you. See what I mean? So you can kind of reverse the atmosphere. The other is acts of service, and it's a similar, it's a similar kind, of, um, kind of logic, right? Like if you see something around the house and you think, oh, well, she'll get that. Right, or he'll 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 take care of that. You know? But what about, you know what? I'm just gonna jump in there and take care of that just as an act of service. See what I mean? So again, it's the same, it's the same sort of dual um, potential here. It's a way to diagnose, right, if if acts of service seem seldom for me and for other the other, um, then that's a way to diagnose. That maybe we've shifted into this realm of expectation. Maybe we've shifted from desires, hopes, and dreams into the realm of expectation. Maybe we're kind of shifting into being the meter of expectation for one another. So, so, so now that I've made that assessment, I'm going to now proactively say, you know what? I'm just going to jump in and perform acts of service in order to breathe the fresh air of unconditional covenant, mutual submission back into the atmosphere here in this relationship. See what I'm saying? Um, so those can be two small means of both diagnosis and of maybe even proactive beginning to transform. Um, and again, for those of you who are um, married, I just want to say, if it's scary for you, and I'm completely sympathetic, like what my sister, like her, that was her quick, you know, analysis um if it's scary for you i mean i got nothing else so so what i want to say is you can stay in the realm of expectation if you want to you can uh but when things get squirrely and things start to unravel and you can't read enough books, and you can't go to enough seminars, and you can't do enough counseling, and you can't do enough whatever, you're going to come right back to this proposition right here. This is going to be the proposition before you, because it's the only way that it works. If you've allowed your desires to become expectations, the only way to get out of the battle of the eye is to somehow reverse the phenomenon and get back into the realm of desires, hopes and dreams and unconditional you first covenant that's it it's the only way so one final trick um, to think about as kind of a homework assignment for this and I don't want you to answer this question I don't want you to jump to the right answer to the question It's just a means for um, not diagnosing anybody else but myself. And it's to sincerely ask the question, what does my spouse owe me? What does my spouse owe me? And just sit with that question. Again, don't jump too fast to 
what you think the right answer is. That's not the purpose. The purpose of the question is not to get the right answer. The purpose of the question is to look inside our own hearts. And see what the atmosphere has become. Um, Maybe even operating in a you owe me kind of mode. And if so, the good news is as you reintroduce unconditional into the atmosphere, it'll change things. And I just want to say, you know, for me and those of you who've been around here a long time, you know that this is an idea that we talk about occasionally. Um, And I just want to say, I I think it's good for us to stir this up, right? And so when I say sit with that question, I mean it. I mean sit with that question. What does my spouse owe me? And sit with the question until until you really get to that spirits of unconditional oneness. That's where life is. That's where healing is. That's where freedom is, ultimately. That's where that's where you find what you got into this thing for. When when your spouse stood at that altar and made that vow, she didn't do that so she could graduate from that moment and become a meter of expectation. She did that because it was her heart's desire to discover your dreams, discover your hopes, and fulfill them. That was her desire. But she can't do that in the context of a debt-debtor relationship. She doesn't have that option. So she's weighted down by expectation. She doesn't get to do what she set out to do. She set her free. Amen? Let's pray.